0: So Friday night we were singing and I was, we were in the middle of a song and suddenly an idea came in my head that I'd been grappling with all week and I knew I needed to chunk that sermon that I'd prepared already for the third time. I just couldn't figure out what to say and I needed to chunk it and I needed to go home and start writing. It still didn't come so it was the, that terrible moment when I knew I was going to have to do Sunday's sermon on Saturday because I just couldn't get things to work right. And it's on Titus, of all things, it's so simple, a little three-chapter book. But here's the question that came to me. It's like, why did Paul write this? Does that seem profound to you? Why did Paul write this in this letter? And that's why, why not something else? Why did he need to write this stuff? And we're used to it. We know what the letters are. We can, often we can recite or quote a passage, and we know it's from this book, and it's like, it's always been there. But why, when he was sitting down at, uh, in that prison room writing this, why did he say and write this because that's, that's the question I had because I was going, what am I going to say on Sunday, right? Crafting a sermon is hard. Now, I hope I make it look easy. I hope I do because it's very deceptive. It's difficult because of this. What do I say from this text to these people? Now, a lot of people, when you're doing a Bible class or a sermon, they'll just, will just preach the text. It means what it says and says what it means. All right, so just read it and then go, ta-da. Or maybe that what they used to do is they would quote 375 verses in a sermon. Just string them together. Okay, but the work still needs to be done. How does that translate into our lives? where we are. That's the hard part. You see, when a sermon falls flat, and I've done many of these, no amens, thank you very much, but I've done many of these, and if it goes flat, it's because of this. It's not because I didn't handle the text right. It's because I didn't translate it into your life. And you're left going, okay, so... Application is the key to a good sermon, and the easiest part of the sermon is the Bible study stuff. And so a lot of sermons are strong on the Bible stuff, but they never make it into your life. And that's what you're wanting to hear every week. You're wanting, okay, tell me what this means. It's the same question as saying, Paul, Paul, why did you write what you wrote in this letter? When it comes to the book of Titus, that's a puzzling thing. I want you to picture this, because this is part of what kind of led to this. There was, most of the New Testament was, it began this way, a a person was thinking about a congregation, what they needed to hear, and they started writing, and they wrote a letter, dear people of Ephesus, and he writes this letter, and then he folds it up, puts it in an envelope, addresses it to the church at Ephesus, and whoever's like maybe an elder there, And then he puts a stamp on it, and it sends it in the mail, or maybe sends it by a person, but maybe sends it in the mail, and it goes across the Roman Empire and lands in somebody's mailbox. And they go out, and they get that thing, and they read it, and they find it interesting, and then they go to church, and they read it, and that that becomes like the church service for that day. And they might pass it on to somebody else if that's fitting. And at some point in time, when did they know that this was the New Testament? when did they know I'm reading scripture? It came in the mail. Scripture came in the mail today. How did, how did, when did that, most of what we read in the New Testament, right? A lot of what we read in the New Testament started out as a letter that was put in the mail and sent, and that's how it happened. When did it When did they realize this is sacred Scripture that's going to be revered for all of time by God's people, and it ends up between the covers, and it becomes part of what you live your life by? When did they know it? It seems to me that if it was ever Scripture, it was always Scripture. If it's ever inspired, it was always inspired from the moment they wrote it. And then there's some letters that are lost, and that's a weird thought. I mean, there's some stuff that would be Scripture if we had it, but we don't have it, and maybe there's a reason why... All the questions I have are in that letter that's lost somewhere in the sands of Egypt, right? That's, that's weird to me. We put these letters together. We call it the New Testament. We live our lives by it. So why are they all different? Why did Paul write to the Philippians what he wrote, but to the Ephesians it was something different? Do you know preachers who keep preaching the same sermons over and over? Don't, don't say names. I have friends who are preachers that have the same four years of sermons that they preach for four years here, and then, oh, well, I've been called somewhere else. No, you haven't. You haven't been called somewhere else. You've just run out of sermons, and you need to move somewhere, and you need to preach the same sermon somewhere else, and it's like they preach those same sermons over here, and it just seems to me a little weird that if this sermon can be preached anywhere, it kind of becomes like a form letter. Why didn't Paul have a dear fill-in-the-blank and he put a church name in there and send the same letter, right? I mean, all he's doing is preaching the gospel, and the gospel's the same everywhere. Why did he write to Titus what he wrote to Titus instead of what he wrote to Timothy? He grappled with each letter. He struggled with what they needed to hear, but he knew they needed something, and he was trying to figure out what to say that they needed. And I want to look at Titus, and I want us to see how this works. So for Titus, it's written by Paul. He's an apostle. He's the apostle to the Gentiles, called by God to preach that gospel everywhere, especially into the Gentile realm. And Paul joined with Titus to go to Crete, and they started establishing churches all around this island. And then Paul says, oh, I need to go. Titus, you stay in Crete you keep doing ministry here, and I'll come and join you again later. And, and that's Paul. That's who wrote this. Titus, on the other hand, he's an interesting figure we know very little about. He's a Gentile. He was born a Gentile. That's, that's who he was. And he was used by Paul. He became a great coworker. And here's the interesting thing about Titus. We, uh, again, we don't know much about him, but we know that all the time that he's mentioned, he is in the middle very tense situation and he's keeping his head perfectly he is a calming influence and he becomes a mediator so situation number one Paul is having a problem with the apostles in Jerusalem and he knows he's getting criticism from them and he comes to Jerusalem and he says here's the gospel that I preach is it the same that you preach and they say yep it's the same that we preach except we want you to be circumcised too and there's Titus Titus is with Paul, he's a Gentile, and they say, we're fine with Titus and you preaching this gospel, but he needs to be circumcised. And Paul says, absolutely not. And Titus becomes the symbol of the distinction between this Jewish message and the Gentile mission, and Paul would not budge. So you've got the Jews on this side pulling this arm of Titus saying, be circumcised. And you've got Paul, uh, Titus's other arm by Paul saying, you don't dare be circumcised using him in a tug-of-war about to split him up. And he's just a fine and dandy being in that spot. He becomes a mediator. Then Paul gets in this conflict with the Corinthians who don't think Paul's any count at all. But he's their apostle, and he's sitting there telling them, what. and he's got this huge conflict and tension that radiates through the New Testament time, and he sends Titus in the middle of that to be a mediator, and he does. He brings peace to it. Titus is the perfect guy for this difficult task in Crete. So you got Paul, you've got Titus, one other group of people you need to know, it's the people of Crete. Here's Crete, it's this little island, at least it looks like that in the Mediterranean. It's got ports that go all over the world. That's why Paul says, you know what, we need to get the gospel on Crete. We can put a person who believes the gospel in everyone who's right? Sent them out all over the Roman Empire. And this is that island, stretched out along. It's not very tall, but it's as wide as can be. And they wanted to put churches all over Crete. But you need to know some things about Crete. And he puts it in the letter. Look at Titus chapter 1. Here is exhibit A about, about Cretan culture. Look at verses 10 and 11. There are many who are insubordinate That's the nature of the Cretan people. They're insubordinate. They won't won't submit to anyone. They want to be their own independent selves no matter what. They're empty talkers. They blah, 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 and they're a bunch of hot air, and they're deceivers, especially when they have a Jewish flavor to them. Right? That's chapter 1, 10, and 11. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, even one of their own philosophers... By the way, this guy is Epimenides is what his name was. He was 500 years before Paul, and this is how he describes his own people. Paul quotes a prophet of the Cretan people from 500 years before. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. They lie. They deceive. They want to tell you whatever. They try to manipulate you. They're lazy. They have no self-control. They want what they want. That's the Cretan people. And notice the next verse. This testimony is true, Paul says. I've lived among them for a time, and I'm telling you, amen to what he says. That's how the Cretan people are, and he loves them, doesn't he? And then finally, exhibit C. There was a word in the ancient world called Cretans. That's the Greek word there, creteo. It's to be a Cretan. They made an adjective out of these people. To be a Cretan was to be a liar. You may recall the word sodomy. It comes from a city where this sin was committed, and the whole city became an adjective. Well, it's the same thing with Crete. The entire island became an adjective for a person who will lie about anything. That's the culture that Paul is addressing when he's writing to Titus. But there's one other thing. Does anybody recognize this picture? Probably not, unless you're into Greek mythology or something. This is like the centerpiece of Crete even today. It's tourism. It's enormous in Crete. This is where Zeus was born. This is Zeus right here. Anybody recall Zeus. This is where Zeus was, they say he was born from the underworld and all that stuff. Zeus was like the god of gods, but he's fickle, he's manipulative, he's a goddessizer. You know what a goddessizer is? You know what a womanizer is? Okay, he would be a womanizer, except that he's a god and he's going after other gods, so he's a goddess-izer. That's just a word I came up with. He would go with anybody, right? He wanted to go after anybody. He had no self control. He had no, nothing to govern him. He was fickle. He was self centered. He was manipulative. That's the God that they were proud of and to be the home place of. That's the God they served. And guess what happens when your God is like that? You are like that. The people of Crete were just like the God they served. And into that world, Paul says, the gospel needs to go. If I were taking a soil sample, I'd look, that's not, a, that's not the kind of country that I think you're going to get good reception. But y'all, here's the deal. The gospel needs to go everywhere. Everywhere. It doesn't matter what kind of soil is there. The gospel needs to go everywhere. We believe that. That's why we have a missions committee. The gospel needs to go everywhere because it's a universal problem. Everybody has the same problem, sin, and there's only one solution to it, the gospel. And so if there's going to be any salvation at all, the gospel must go. How do you talk to people like that? If you were writing about American culture right now, how would you describe it? Somebody somebody were from another country and said, "Tell me about the people that live in the United States. What are they like? How would you describe us?" It's an interesting thing. Then Paul says, "What does Titus need to hear?" What does he need to hear? And here's how he determines what you write. This is how you determine what you say when you're trying to share the truth with somebody. Number one, you clarify what the gospel is. If I were to ask you right now, what is the gospel, what would you say? Just think about in your mind. What would you say? I'm guessing. How many would say it's a death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? Okay, that's one. That's true as far as it goes. It's a whole lot more to it than that, but that is the heart of it, right? But there's a lot of people who believe that, but it has no bearing whatsoever on their lives. And you look at that, and that becomes a truncated gospel, right? But there's other people who say, well, the gospel is the Bible. Just preach the Bible, and you're preaching the gospel. Well, that's a little bit, a little bit too broad there. Even if you just say the New Testament, that's a little too broad for that. What is the gospel? Here's your homework assignment for next time, because I'm not going to answer that question right now. Here's what I want you to think about. Look at all the sermons in the book of Acts, Look at all the sermons that are preached in the book of Acts. When it has a presentation of the gospel, what does it include in the book of Acts? I want you to think about that because here's the thing this is who we are. And if we in the church don't really know what the gospel is, we are in trouble. If we can't share this with somebody, just just the fact of it, just what the gospel is, we are in trouble. And so this book does that. In chapter 3, Paul talks about what the gospel is. I want you to know what the whole story is because you can't apply it to your life if you don't know what it is. So you've got the gospel, he clarifies it. Secondly, you clarify the context, which we just did. He's going to Crete. And finally, you apply that gospel to that context and things light up. When you're watching Channel 8, the weather, Ryan Vaughn will come on and say, well, there's a cold front coming in. So you've got your, we've got our air that we have right now, and then the cold front comes in. And when that cold front goes over what's already here, it lights up, and it gives you some spots where there's going to be some real tension and agitation, right, because these two things conflict. When we put the gospel onto our context some things are okay. There's some things about our culture that fit fine with the gospel, and there's no changes at all. But some things, when you bring the gospel into our culture, will absolutely light up and say, we got, we're gonna have conflict right here. This is gonna be tension and challenge. And that's what Paul does. He looks at Crete, he puts the gospel on top of the people of Crete and that culture, and he sees the spots light up, and he says, I've gotta write about those spots. That's what we've gotta do. We've gotta write about those spots. So when he writes to the people of Crete, Titus and what to preach to him, he comes up with two things. Two things they need. That's it. Three chapters of two things. Number one, they need leadership. We see a culture that is just so, it, it, it's fiercely independent, obnoxious. They, they don't have any self-control at all. They're gluttonous and they're liars. Into that kind of culture, we need leadership in the church that models the exact opposite of that. We need leaders who model the integrity of the Christian faith. We need leaders who actually live out where this gospel will go if you let yourself submit to it in every area of life. We need men who have this teaching of the truth, but they also have a living of the truth that they live out right in front of the church. The church needs to know what the gospel looks like in our culture when it's lived out faithfully. We do that. We look to our leaders and then our culture. Our culture needs to know what does it look like if I do this. Let me give you one example the way he starts this letter. I told you Zeus was a liar and so all the the Cretans were too. Notice when Paul writes this letter in verse 2, verse 1 and 2. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God who what? Why in the world does he choose that? Why does he choose? He's a, we serve a God who never lies. He can't lie. Because when you're used to Zeus... And when you're used to lying and all you're through your life and you think there ain't no big deal, no, no, the God of the gospel never lies. And guess what his people never do? His people never lie either. And so we need leaders who don't lie. And this first chapter is two things about the leaders. What kind of character they need to have. They need to be people of upstanding character. And you see those descriptions. Every time we choose elders, we come to Titus and we look at it. There are, though, interestingly enough, there are some contextual differences. When you compare the list of qualifications in Timothy to the qualifications in Titus, there's some differences. You will notice Titus does not say they cannot be new believers. Timothy did. So can a, new, a newer believer be a, an elder? Well, T- Timothy seems to say, no, we don't need those. But, but if Paul told Titus that, there would be none. It's such a young church that if you wait 20 years for someone to have the proper maturity that you think would make a great elder, they would never have elders, so that's not even listed in there. Even that is a context. But then, probably better than Timothy does, Titus gives a job description. I want you to join me at verse 9. So many times all we do talk about elders is the kind of character they need to have, but notice in verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. This man must have a grasp of the truth. He must know the truth not just for himself. He must know it so fully that he can transfer it to the mind of someone else. He needs to be able to teach it, embody it, convincingly show you what the truth is. This elder needs to know the truth enough to present it, but also to contradict when he hears something that's not in line with it. Notice verse 11. They must be silenced. These empty talkers who are going around thinking they're so this and they're just willing to say anything to get some attention. the, the, The elders need to be willing and able to know the truth, recognize when something's not true, and be able to silence it. You know what that means? They might, in the middle of a sermon, have to stop the guy and be able to say on the fly, Why what he's saying is wrong and that can't continue here. They've got to be able to silence that because, man, there were people teaching all sorts of things. That's the kind of leadership they needed in that culture. But that's the the easy thing, maybe. Notice there's some other New Testament letters that never mention leadership at all. So why mention it to Titus but never say a word about the leaders to the Philippians or to the Ephesians? Why in this letter is there nothing about the Lord's Supper? They seem, to, they seem to have taken the teaching of Paul and Titus about the Lord's Supper just fine, and they take the Lord's Supper and they do it properly. There's no reason to talk about that. They've got that. They've got baptism down. But the leadership thing, man, that's a conflict here. And there's a second thing, teaching. Paul does a great thing for us because he actually gives a curriculum here, and that's a weird thing because we don't anywhere else. He actually starts telling them what they need to teach, and I got to tell you, I think this, this transfers pretty directly to us. The most important thing we do as a church is teach the truth. Fellowship's great, but we've got to teach and you think about Crete, they've lived with generations of gods and goddesses of mythology, and they've got ingrained behaviors that have guided their lives for centuries. And now the new gospel comes in, and it comes in talking about a, a God who saves, and that's great. That grace is wonderful. But, but they've got years to undo, and they need constant teaching. And when they come to church, they don't need a five-minute devo with 15 minutes worth of stories to make them go, oh, that was a great sermon. They need solid teaching to counteract the world they've grown up in and that doesn't happen in a couple of minutes so chapter 2 verse 1 chapter 1 was about leadership chapter 2 and 3 are about teaching and he says i want you to teach what is in accord with sound doctrine and he goes in and he says the older men need this the younger men need this the older ladies need this the younger ladies need this and it's 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 interesting okay it's interesting that he groups them like this sometimes we group our classes a little bit weird we think that only contemporary people with me is effective for me learning but that's not what paul says paul says younger ladies need to hear the older ladies teaching there needs to be time for classes when older men are teaching younger men and they're all in the class together. Well, sometimes we segregate so much that we think that the only people in here are the people my age. Now there's nothing wrong with that because he does do that too. He groups them in kind of their own contemporary. But there's, t- there's a time and a place for us to mix them and to learn from each other. But we're just gonna, I, I just want to point out two or three of the most controversial things because I love controversy. One is this. All, f- all four groups need one word. There's one word that appears with all of them. They all need self-control. And the culture of Crete, when the gospel comes in, the first thing that they need to pay attention to is the self-control that's needed. Do you think in our culture there's a need for self-control? Do you think our culture has gone haywire with, I want to do what I want to do, and I have the freedom to do what I want to do, and wh- I be true to my natural self, my fallen self that I'm born with. I've got sin in me, but I should still let myself take control and don't let anybody tell you anything else. You just be you. Have you heard that message lately? It's everywhere. And in a world like that, Paul says if the gospel comes in, it needs to teach you self-control. There needs to be something outside of you, bigger than you, that actually has veto power on you. It can actually tell you, you need to tell yourself no about this. I know what you feel. I know what you want. But God is saying no. Our culture needs it. And I, just a glimpse. Jump down to chapter 2, verse 11. This was read a moment ago, and I'm very well, but I want you to listen to what he's saying. The grace of god verse 11 has appeared bringing salvation for all people are you glad about that everybody is the grace of god has appeared and jesus brought salvation jesus came to save hallelujah get that lighter let's wave right right i love it he's saving us but notice something else it does that nobody else wants to talk about in the religious world the same time Jesus is saving, he's instructing. Same time. He's in the garden showing you how much he loves you and willing to go for you, but he's showing you something else. And so it says, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people, but also training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion. That same grace that's saved is showing you you've got to say no to some stuff hold it. I don't like that part. Okay, Jesus was in the garden. Jesus in the garden, about to go through the cross that we just observed a moment, about to go through the cross and all that, and we're grateful for that. That's atonement that we could never, if we lived a million lifetimes, have achieved for ourselves. That's grace But also in the garden, he is demonstrating something. There's a reason why the garden scene is recorded. And only Jesus could have provided it. No one else was there and conscious enough to record that. Jesus wants us to know what happened in that garden. And it's not just about to make the cross look impressive. He's saying, do you see what happened? I was praying and I said, God, I don't want to do this. But if it's what you want me to do, I'll do it. Do you understand what he's doing? He's teaching you that same grace. The moment he's saving you, he's also instructing you. Start saying no to you and yes to God. But nobody wants to talk about that part. Paul says, teach the gospel, but preach the whole thing. The whole thing self-control is needed there's another line in here that there's a guy i won't say his name some of you know him who will get on facebook every once in a while and beat the tar out of this verse it's chapter two the older women are to train the younger women to love their husbands i guess it doesn't come naturally i don't know i think i'm naturally lovable but maybe someone needs to train melissa how to i'm not the young we're not the young ones anymore so i guess that's not true to be self controlled, to be pure, to be busy at home. And this preacher wants to get on and say, Facebook, and say, women must work at home. See, it says they've got to be busy at home. Titus says that. You see it in your text, right? I'm going to have an elder come up here and tell us why that doesn't count. No, no, I'm just kidding. I I don't want to put them on this one. I mean, that's what it says. Should we preach that? Women need to be busy at home? It's there. I, I didn't write the rest of this. I was hoping somebody else would finish it. If that's in there, why don't we preach that? Because Paul is taking the gospel, applying it to the context of Crete. He's applying it to Crete. And in Crete, most of the women stayed at home. And he says to them, when you stay at home, you stay busy there because some of you, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, some of you are being busybodies. You're using that extra time that you've got there. You're running around to other women of the church and you're or, or even in culture and you're you're gossiping and you're hurting the church and while that doesn't happen on Sunday morning what you do on Tuesday affects what happens on Sunday and it affects lives. And so you're running around and you're getting involved in extra How would I apply that today? Here's how I would apply it. If you men or women are working at home, don't get online so much on Facebook that you're connecting with old girlfriends. Don't let that idle time that you have, that extra free time that you might have, don't let that keep you from doing some good works. You engage in good works. Don't you get distracted with things that might take you away from this. Put it in its context. We've got a context too. And it's vastly different from Crete, but you take that same. This is why preaching's hard. And you can't just take a verse and just throw it at people. It becomes a missile that hurts. And not only that, it's inaccurate. Do the translation. Last thing. If you're going to underline three verses real quick, it's the three verses I want to give you on this. Chapter 2, he says, here's all these specific things I want you to do, and here's the main reason why in these three plays. Look at verse 5, this last part of verse 5 in chapter 2. Talking about all these things the older women need to teach the younger women, that the word of God may not be reviled. We don't want the Word of God being looked bad in the world. You are representing the doctrine. What people think Christianity teaches, they don't get from Scripture. They get from you. So make sure that they get an accurate reading when they see your life. Look at verse 8, the last part. Sound and speech, not be condemned, so that your opponents may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about Don't give them fodder to ridicule you because you are not acting in line with the truth. You are a model of the quality of the gospel. Make your modeling quality too. And then look at verse 10, the last one. So that in every way you make the teaching about our Savior attractive. Let's be members of the church that when we leave here and go down off this hill, we make the teaching that God gave us in his scripture attractive in the world. Let's live a life where people go, wow, whatever's guiding your belief, that's attractive. This is a good exercise. Exegete the gospel, but exegete your context. And that's what preaching is supposed to do. I took Noel with me to Caruso one time, this camp for high school students see one to preach and on Thursday night. We were on this whiteboard still trying to work out the sermon. He was gonna preach the next day, and he says, do, do you do this every week with every sermon? I said, Yeah, you gotta grieve over this. He says, Then I don't ever want to do this. And he never went back. But he knows. He knows how it's done, and it's not always easy to figure out how does the gospel touch your life. When I fall flat, it's because I didn't do that well. I want you to picture writing yourself a letter this week, and here's what you do with your letter. Write out what is the gospel. What is it that God has done for us and the implications it has for me? Then write out your context. What what are your weaknesses? What are your strengths What relationships are you in? Are you married? Are you single? Are you dating somebody? What are the temptations, the the environments you're in? Where do you work? What are the weaknesses and strengths? I want you to think about your entire context. And then I want you to ask yourself a question. When this gospel is laid over my life in these areas, what results? When you do that, you'll ask yourself one other question. It's this. What should that letter say? What do I need to tell myself? If I'm going to be faithful to this gospel message in my context, what do I need to be paying attention to? What are my challenges and struggles? And then write that down. That's how Paul wrote the letters. That's how we determine what we need to work on in our lives. And this morning, maybe you've decided, you know what, I want to I, I I give my life to God. If you do that, I want you to know The gospel is pretty simple, and when you're immersed, you're embodying the gospel in the death, burial, and resurrection. A look back to the past, what Jesus has done, but a look to the future of what you still have to do. I've got to immerse my entire life in that gospel message. And you'll rise to that new life, but you'll constantly be wondering, where else does the gospel touch in my life that I need to be tending to? And that's your marching orders for your life. You can determine that yourself. What would your letter say if you did this? And for some of you, you've determined some things already just in your own mind, and you can do that in the sanctity of your mind with God. But maybe there's someone that just, for whatever reason, need the prayers of this church to help you identify that and give you the motivation to do that. Let's be God's letter in the world and make it a good one as we stand, as we sing together.